The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Previously on Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic. We love you, Amy. We love you. We support you. We send everything good out of our hearts to you. Send some message. Find some way to come home. 35 FBI agents were assigned to the Mihaljevic case. 100,000 man hours had been logged. And practically everyone involved in the investigation were clinging to hope that Amy would be found alive. A female jogger was jogging this morning at approximately 7.30 and uh, she spotted something in the field and went off the field and checked and it was a body. Amy was in fifth grade at Bay Village Middle School and as school let out, the faces of students spoke anger and despair. Being kidnapped and she, she's with God now, so it'll be fine. Sick. Hope you just find him and arrest him. With, with Margaret leaving and... Uh, uh, her passing, then I'm the only one left. You know, Margaret's passed on, but Mark and yeah, the rest of the family are still there, and we want to make sure we provide that closure. It's important. You know, we have some, you know, we have bait in the net to some extent. We have uh, stuff out there we look at that's important. And, uh, you know, we, we want information that somebody thinks is viable. But we continue to reevaluate all these things as new information comes available. Or, like I said, we'll reevaluate the case, we'll bring in a fresh set of eyes to say, you know, you look at this. National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, we brought them in to take a look at it. You know, we, because we get kind of focused on what we think. Well, what do you think? You haven't lived this. Take a look and tell me what you think. And So we've done that on several cases and that's provided new information. But um, the same fact pattern, the fact patterns never change. You know, the, basically that you know she was lured to that center uh, to be taken probably for a sexual purpose ended up being killed and her body was found down in Ashland County those are facts that are indisputable and those are the facts we go with to help build that case out I am Bill Huffman and welcome to episode 11 of who killed Amy Mihaljevic on this week's episode of Who Killed Amy Mihaljevic, I'm going to flip things around a bit. I was recently a guest on the True Crime Garage premium show, Off the Record, on Stitcher Premium. Since this was an opportunity for Nick to ask me some questions about this case, I thought it would be relevant to the listeners of this program to hear where I stand on things and how it was that I got involved in Amy's case. Take a listen to our interview from True Crime Garage's premium show, Off the Record. All right, we are rolling. All right, how are you doing today? Good, how are you, Bill? I'm doing very well, thank you. So I've been listening to the podcast. I love it. Um, I think it's great what you're doing. It's you. it. The case itself is large enough with details and, of course, the time span and the character's and players involved that it's really the perfect format to have, you know, how many shows you intend on doing 10? A total of 10. Yes. 
I'll tell you what. Why don't we, you know, you and I have talked about Amy's case several times. You're one of my favorite people to discuss the case with. Last time we talked about it, I did a lot of the talking because you wanted to hear my thoughts and theories, and I got a bazillion of them. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I've i been listening to your show, and I know that you are kind of inching your way, or at least from conversations you and I had, I know that you have some thoughts and theories um, that I was wondering if you would share with us here today. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, the way that I look at the case is that, uh, you know, the people that know the Amy Mihaljevic case, you know, the, the ruse that was used to set up uh, the kidnapping uh, was something of the nature of, I work with your mother and we're going to buy a gift for her recent promotion at work. Mm-hmm. I've always believed that the, or at least with my investigation that I've, you know, been doing over the last eight to 10 months, is that that was probably more of a misdirection than anything, you know, concrete. Like, obviously, the police looked into the, the you know, where Margaret worked. There was nobody there that fit any of those descriptions. She had not received a promotion, but she did go from part-time to full-time. So, you know, that is a, in f- some families, that is a promotion. And basically, I think as far as, the Margaret ruse, I think it honestly, you know, just to cut right to the chase is that I think it stems from Mark's background. So somebody using the mother as a misdirection. Okay. So if Amy does tell somebody about this phone call or as I believe multiple phone calls, um, if she does tell somebody, then I can back off. I can, I just won't take the, child and they'll think that some creep from her mother's work was calling. And what's interesting here is, do you have an idea of, I was aware that Margaret went from part-time to full-time and in a child's eyes, in a child's mind, that would feel like a promotion that might make sense to a child because, you know, you're getting told, Hey, mom's going to be working more. Well, you could assume that was some kind of promotion, especially when somebody, especially when somebody's telling you on the phone that she received a promotion. Do, do you have an idea of about the time frame between when she went from part time to full time and when the abduction took place? Was you know, it that, weeks? That, that's a, you know that's a good question. I I don't have an exact time frame. I do believe it was in the within the month of when the phone calls occurred. But as far as you know. Of course, a kid is going to think that that is. I mean, it is a promotion to to any family who's you know needs more money. <clears throat> like every family, every family needs more money. So to go from part time to full time in a kid's mind, absolutely, it's a promotion to them. Sure, it may not feel that way to the mom or for to the father, but at the bottom, the bottom line is you're getting more money. So to the child, yeah. If the, somebody calls you and says your mom received a promotion at work. Who is she to say that she didn't? Right. Well, and one thing that I'm loving about your show is that there are so many, you know, I've been looking at this case since on and off since 1989, you know, and it's rare for me to find a new detail that's concrete. And one thing that I heard on your show, which is concrete, um, I know it to be from listening, 
is the added detail about the phone call that the abductor or the man who called her claims, hey, we're going to go buy your mom a gift. I need you to help me pick it out. I have $40 to spend and whatever's left over, you can keep. Yeah, the that was one of the interesting details that I learned when I was interviewing uh, Chief Spetzel. And that was that in the details that they learned from you know, the girls who came forward to tell about the uh, the meeting that Amy was having was that I believe it was $45, but it was okay. one of those, yeah, it was $45, but it was one of those dollar amounts that I had never heard before. And I was, you know, I'd never even heard him mention a dollar amount up until that point. So I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. And you know, for a kid, again, let's say you spend twenty five bucks on a gift, you get twenty dollars. That's mm-hmm. that's pretty rewarding. Oh yeah, and incentive to to go about things. the The thing that we you know is so odd about the case is well, one, the phone call. That's obvious because that's just putting yourself out there. But the way that he was able to get her to lie to her parents. I mean, she had never really been one to lie. And on this day, she made up a lie about having to stay after school for a choir practice. And there was no such thing. Mm-hmm. So not only did this guy get her comfortable enough to meet, you know, he got her comfortable enough to lie. Right. So this person had to have had experience talking to children and that is you know that that leads you to a bunch of different you know avenues right now you think or at least in conversations you and i have had you think one possibility is that maybe the perpetrator would be younger than some of the suspects that i've always thought of um and you and i had a conversation about a young individual. Was it, was this man 20, 21? I believe he was, I want to say he was 21. Okay. And the thing that makes his, you know, we're just going to, you know, what makes him interesting is the fact that, or what brought, brought him to my attention was I did some uh, FOIA requests with uh, the service departments around the area because I thought, in my mind, you know, people who have time to drive around and work on city streets and, you know, they could have time to, you know, maybe stalk a girl or right. see a girl that they that might catch their eye. And then, you know, boom, they know where they live. Oh, she's walking home from school or riding her bike. Let's just drive the truck. You know, it, it just was it was something that just crossed my mind because I worked for the city in college and uh, just, you know, there's some shady characters that work in those uh departments but in my requests i uncovered a guy who had been hired by the city of rocky river on october 26th and then fired on october 28th and there aren't many reasons that you get fired within a day yeah say those dates again uh, the date was October 26th, 1989, that he was hired. He was fired October 28th, 1989. Okay, so, and she was abducted on the 27th? She was abducted on October 27th, 1989. So the guy 
he was hired and he may have worked that Thursday, may have worked that Friday. He's fired by Saturday. Yeah. And so the the interesting part about it, that is that there aren't many things that get you fired in a day. So the thought process, at least my thought process, is that he left either left early or just didn't even show up for work. Yeah. You and I both agreed when we had that conversation was really the I mean, of course, he could have stolen something. He could have exposed himself. He could have done any number of things to get fired in a day. But the first thing that jumps to your mind is no call, no show or just walked out. Exactly. And 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 another interesting thing. So that was the one thing that jumped out to me. Okay, the the dates are weird. So then I started looking into, you know, looked into his record and it turned out that he had had some charge in the Metro Parks. Now, it did not specify which Metro Parks, but okay. in the city of Bay Village, there is what is considered, you know, the Cleveland Metro Parks, which is Hunting- Huntington Beach area, the Huntington Woods area, as well as the Lake Erie Nature and Science Center. And in those areas, you have walking paths and, you know, woods and soccer fields and, and just a variety of different Thing. So what is weird about it is that there was this charge from, I believe it was in April of 89, that has been, I, well, I guess I'd say expunged, but it's still there. I mean, it's, okay. it's there's some record of something that happened. I don't know if it would, could, could have been drunken, you know, public intoxication, but why would you get that expunged? Right. And there was a time in, you know, you can't basically, you can basically get, you can't get anything expunged anymore. It's very but, difficult, yeah. But back then, there was just like a few, you know, you you had to wait a few years and boom, you could have your lawyer send in a letter and get that off of your record. Yeah. So that happened in April. Then he gets hired at the city of Rocky River, doesn't show up for work or leaves early. Give us Amy a general... goes missing. Give us a okay. general idea of proximity from Rocky River to Bay Village. So Rocky River is literally the city directly to the east of Bay Village. Next so door. Next door. Okay. We share, we're both lakeside communities. And the the interesting thing about this individual is that he, he lived he lived in Bay Village, but he worked for Rocky River. Where he lived in Bay Village was just about a quarter mile from where Amy Mahalovic lived. And she walked and rode her bike from time to time to and from school. Um, yeah, he, it was he, very he common have, back then. Yeah, he could have seen her at any time. And in fact, the day she was abducted, she rode her bike to school. Yeah, she definitely, you know, the day that she was taken was abnormally warm. It was one of those, you know, Indian summer type days where I think it even was close to 70 degrees. So kids were out playing. It was it wasn't your typical late October Cleveland day where it was kind of like it is today where Mm -hmm. it's gloomy and ugly. It was really a beautiful day and, you know, obviously ended with, you know, in tragedy, but um but yeah, that that one individual, he he's somebody that I've uh, I've kind of focused in on. I don't know if I'm gonna 
say that that is the person that I believe did it, but I do believe that there's a lot of smoke there. Okay. And, you know, and as, as anybody knows, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. So, would and, this... he, and he and he later went down. No, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, no, I I keep cutting you off, but I got um. Would he have happened to have lived alone? Do you know? You know, at that time, I think he probably would have lived with his parents. Okay. So, and I don't know if I'm still trying to find the connection between him and Ashland County. I think that's that's where I'm kind of running into roadblocks, but. You know, one of the things that the FBI always states is that people who commit crimes generally will have a adverse reaction to that behavior and they'll end up either going to drugs or drinking. And this particular individual had multiple DUIs in the 90s, you know, shortly after uh, the abduction. So... You know, there was there was stuff there that just made me think there might be something more to this guy than meets the eye. So you're not you're not to the point where you say, you know, because James is named James Renner has named some suspects um, or people he believes to be possible suspects. Um, I agree with some of his list. I think there's a lot of questionable behavior in there, but you're not ready to say, uh, Bill Huffman, I put my stamp on this guy as I think he should be a person of interest. You're just saying at this point, from what you can tell from tracking this individual's history, there's nothing to take him off your list. Yeah, that's exactly where I stand. And that's, I'm kind of, you know, I'm not going. I don't want to go the James Renner route in the sense that I'm going to say I have a top three or a top five. I'm just going to, you know, because I don't want to give anybody more credence than the other. But, you know, he's one that definitely stands out to me as somebody that could possibly be, uh, you know, the perpetrator. Just because of the fact that the description of the of the guy came from two 10 year olds. And when 10 year old when you're a 10 year old, somebody who's 21 could you know, easily be con- misconstrued for 25. I mean, what's the difference? Especially since they say the age, you know, is 25 to 35. So. Well, and that's where I think we've, you and I vary a little bit is that, you know, the, the one child who gives a description of the man that he believes he saw talking to Amy uh has or has been quoted as saying something to the effect that I thought it was Amy's father. And so that's where we vary because I tend to lean more towards that 30 to 35 range, putting the individual closer to the actual age of her father. Um, but with this particular individual that you're talking about, he, you say he's probably 21 at this time in October of 89. And what's interesting about that, though, there were, after she was found, there were newspaper reports where we have witnesses in that Ashland County area that say, look, I think I saw some some guy in his early 20s uh, with, a, with a car with the trunk open uh, in the area just days or nights before she was found. And I don't... 
I'm not going to sit here and pretend to think or believe that she was dumped days before she was found. I think she was there quite a bit more time than that. But who knows? Did the individual come back and look at the site? Did did he come back and wonder why they haven't found her? Or is there any way that I can better conceal her um, and return to the area? Or was this an individual that lived somewhat near the area and would drive by periodically to check on it? The, the interesting thing there, though, would you think that the guy that you're talking about would he, and I know it's a pretty general description they give of the man that's in his early twenties mm-hmm. seen in that area. Would he fit? Can you rule him out from that? I can't, I cannot rule him. No, I cannot rule him out with that description. Now, the one thing that I can say is that a lot of those claims of seeing people or, you know, the witnesses who have said that they have saw somebody, you know, authorities kind of downplayed that because of the fact that they do believe her body was there for so long. Right. I do like your idea that he may have been going back and, you know, Ted Bundy style, you know, appreciating his, you know, that's a terrible word to use. But uh, we know what you mean. Returning to the scene. Returning to the but scene. Maybe, to, maybe not for the same reasons that Ted Bundy returned. Yeah, to we're not going to go. I'm not going to go into what Ted Bundy did, but exactly. Returning to the scene getting that feel for uh you know like the rush maybe but the the idea that she was there the whole time you know that i don't know that there is still some debate james believes that you know his belief is that she was there basically the whole time yeah i think he says and he said this to me too is that I he I think he thinks maybe sometime that Sunday night or the Monday morning that somebody placed her body there. She was taken Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that I find interesting regarding that, you know, and and he kind of clued us in on something. I don't know if he spoke too much. I don't know if he said some things that he uh, wishes he wouldn't have said. But one thing that was interesting when you guys were talking about this exact topic on your show was mm-hmm. that. He had, but he had been told that the body likely was stored or kept somewhere for some amount of time. They don't. They didn't. Sounds like they didn't give him a good idea of what they feel is some amount of time. But what's interesting on that thought is I had read years ago, and I believe it was a quote from an FBI agent that had stated. We believe she could have been kept for a period of time, and that could have been anywhere from two days to two weeks. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now where I roll with that is I had always thought that that meant kept alive for as little as two days or as long as two weeks. Now, hearing that information from your show, I'm starting to wonder, does that mean might have been kept alive for a day or two Uh. Or, I mean, you know, anywhere from from a couple hours after being abducted to a day or two being held alive. And then the body was kept from anywhere for two to two, two days to two weeks before being placed in that field. Right. And the one thing that would would back your uh, statement up would be that her stomach contents, 
you know, she did not have anything to eat. If she was, you know, she most likely, you can live without food for two weeks, but the fact that she only had what she had for lunch that Friday in her stomach doesn't bode well for her being alive for much longer than more, you know, for more than maybe 24 to 48 hours. Right. But the idea of her being stored somewhere, now that is something that I do think James, I don't know if he hinted at it or not. I don't know if that's what you're referring to, but when he was talking about what was on the autopsy report, and that the police from Bay had told him not to discuss one thing that was on there. Mm-hmm. And I tried to get him to discuss that <laughs> one thing. Get, but uh, you, you yeah, dog. You dog. Yeah, you know, uh he um he wouldn't, but you know, you have to let your you can let your mind wonder what that one thing is, and maybe it is that. Maybe it is the fact that she was kept in a cooler, you know, I mean We've all seen the Iceman tapes. Anybody who knows true crime, uh, you know, the ice kill, you know, the ice pick killer, whatever the mm-hmm. Krasinski guy. Uh, yeah. But, you know, they can, and in Ashland, you know, it's major hunting territory. So a lot of these places are outfitted with giant coolers. So who's to say that she wasn't just kept for the weekend and then just put into a freezer for or not even necessarily a freezer but a cooler freezer type thing and then transported to where she was eventually found yeah and there's nothing that says that that couldn't have been the case and maybe that is one of the keys that they're holding back yeah and and that's leads me to this something that i you know when you and i had our discussion and I've voiced this several times, even on True Crime Garage, that, you know, when they release that information about the curtain or blanket or quilt or whatever you want to call it, so many years, you know, over 20 years later, they show that to the public and then they ask for the public's assistance. <laughs> and, I, and I've kind of criticized that move. But I, I do want to say something and I want to kind of clean that up, that thought up quite a bit because where I'm, where I take issue with that particular method that they use there with that evidence that, that they're asking for people that have seen this item before we have so many people that could have passed, moved away, or just simply forgotten that they've actually seen that item before where I've criticized that move. One thing I want to be clear on is when your interviews with Spetzel I like that he refuses, he stops himself from referring to Amy Mahalovic's case as a cold case. And what he means by that when he says that is that it's very much active in the eyes of his department, meaning that they are actively pursuing this case when they, you know, when there is information to review or when they have time to continue to pursue it. So I, I want to be clear that I, I'm criticizing that particular method, that one item, but I'm not, I don't want to come off as criticizing the police department. I, I don't think that this has not been solved because of a lack of effort. I think there's been a, an extreme good, strong effort from the Bay Village Police Department. They've, they've set aside ego 
multiple times, mm. which we've which we've seen flaw other cases when they can't set aside their ego. They've set aside their ego, brought experts in, brought in FBI, brought in anybody from anywhere that's willing to help. So it's not for a lack of effort. The thing here is that we got to keep in mind, and, and people are quick to criticize police departments when cases go unsolved. It's not not always is it their fault that it's unsolved. Let's in this particular case, this was I this was not a dumb man that abducted and killed Amy Mahalovic. This is somebody that put some thought into what they were doing. And I backed that up by saying the ruse of talking to the child on the phone, luring her to a public place. He abducts a child and nobody knows that an abduction occurred. You know, she doesn't scream. She doesn't yell. She doesn't fight back. If she would have done any of those things, we would have, we would have immediately known that, that the poor girl was abducted. He, he was able to conceal his car or vehicle. He, you know, Mm -hmm. we don't have an eyewitness saying, Oh, I saw a, a green truck or I saw a blue van. We don't have a description of a vehicle. And so this person, I'm not, I don't want to say he's, you know, highly intelligent. I can't speak to that. But what I can say is this is not a dumb man. This is somebody that put a lot of thought and planning into what occurred. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you on that 100%. The fact that he would set this up, he obviously scoped out the, the scene. You know, he knew where to park the car, where he wouldn't be seen taking her obviously he knew the police station was across the street i mean i know james has said well they're likely but you know there are police cars in the parking lot it may not he may have thought it was a city hall i could see that but again if he's from this familiar with bay and this familiar with amy or amy's background i don't know it doesn't it wouldn't surprise me if he he knew it was there and this was sort of like a you know, um, look how smart I am. Well, yeah, I don't think it was a middle finger to the police. I think that it was the police station happened to be located where it is. And for him to get Amy, and this is what I want to be very clear on. And I've been, I've been very upfront about this the entire time. Anytime anybody asked me about this case, this was not a random abduction. This not individual targeted her for some reason. And the thing with the police department being across the street, I think it was just, it's an added risk factor for him, but you say he knew Bay village and people out there listening are going to go, well, how do you know that he knew Bay village bill? And I, and, and, and let's talk about that. He, he obviously knew Bay village because of several things. One, he called a girl that he knew had the ability to after after school leave on her own. This was not a child that was being picked up every day by a parent. This was not a child that was hopping on a school bus every day after school. This is not somebody that needed to be accounted for the minute that school let out. This was a child that had the ability to go to another location after school by their own means without without using a vehicle and and choosing the plaza, a place where it was known that children went to after school on occasion and knowing the proximity of the plaza to her school. It was so damn close. 
he knew she would have the ability to get there without telling her brother, without needing a ride from mom or dad, without anybody else's assistance. She could walk there, ride her bike there, what have you, be there on her own. And all he has to do is show up and wait to see her. And if she doesn't show, you call off your call off your plan and maybe you try right. to try another girl at another time. But if she does show up, it's full go. And, yeah. and so he, he, for him to have had abducted her from the plaza, I think it's very likely that he suggested meeting at that location. And if he did, that means he knew Bay village. He knew, he knew the area. Well, that's, a, you know, people, listeners, majority of people don't know what Bay Village is like. Bay Village is a very, you know, it's mostly residential homes. There's very little commerce as far as stores and, you know, the uh, traditional strip malls or anything like that. This really, at that time in 1989, was the only place that kids really did go to after school because of the location of Wolf Road being, you know, right there by the middle school. I mean, it was literally a quarter mile from there. So it, the difference being, you know, Amy would have had to go the opposite direction. You, you brought up, this is something that I just thought of and that you brought up on your show when you discussed Amy and it was an interesting thought and it was, why did she leave her bike? Right. Maybe she thought that they would go to the, wherever they were going to go do whatever, you know, buy this gift. And then she would just get dropped back off at the plaza and she would walk back to school, get her bike and ride home Mm -hmm. because it was, On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. On the way. Right. To me, that makes the most sense as far as why she would have left her bike. But... Again, yeah, this I, person, this person did not just randomly pick Amy Mahalovic. Now, when you and I spoke, I did throw out something that popped in my head. So, James Renner and I drove around Bay Village uh, for a couple of hours, just mm-hmm. really just spitballing. I mean, we were literally just throwing every wild thing up in the air and seeing, you know, if any of it made any sense. But one thing that that popped into to my tiny little brain while we were driving around was I said to him, I said, you know, because he, um, you know, the, the thought was that 
And this is just a bunch of outsiders' perspectives looking in on a family dynamic, and we don't fully know or understand that family dynamic. But but one thing that has been speculated by more people than just myself is that Amy may have been seeking attention or affection from a mother that was might have been um, strict, might have been difficult, and definitely had some issues with alcohol. And she may have been seeking attention and affection from this mother who could have been distant. And if if she was, and one thing that I tossed out to James and tossed it out to you was, and I know this is pretty far fetched. It's a big giant leap, but what if what if this this jerk says to Amy, "Go ahead and leave your bike at the school. Uh, I'll pick you up at the plaza. We'll go pick up the gift. We'll go shopping, and then afterward, we're going to do a cake and punch at at your mom's office, where we're going to give her this gift, and you can be there mm. to give your mom this gift that right. you helped me pick out. And I think." I think if he came up with that, she would have fell for it. If, if yeah, because that sounds very convincing and definitely would let the guard down on. And how safe would you feel if you say, "Hey, yeah, I'm meeting this person that I don't know, but they're going to drop me off at my mom's work afterwards." No, we're going to meet my mom, I right? Mean, I, I, the biggest thing again, we go back to this. They had a secret code that they would tell one another. The you know between Jason, Margaret, and Amy. Do you know what about, it is? Now, Mark has, Mark, I, I have to go, he doesn't, Mark doesn't seem to remember a lot of stuff. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Uh, and I like Mark. I, 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 my heart, my heart is, goes out to him a million times. I cannot imagine the hell that his life has been because of this terrible mm-hmm. event. Um, so, but, he, so I'm not accusing him of anything, but it, it's frustrating for me to listen to Mark because I'm like, damn it, man, remember something, you know? Um, but, but I think, do you think yeah, it's, you, you think it's right. post-traumatic, you know, do you think it's PTSD because his child was taken and murdered? I, I, I would think so. Yeah. I, I honestly do believe that there's a lot of, yeah, I'm a big, big proponent of therapy and, uh, you know, psychology and psychiatry and all the, you know, the means and methods of you know, treating that type of thing. I do believe that there's a lot of PTSD. I can't fathom what it would be like to lose a child. I can't fathom what his life has been like, you know, the living, literally living hell that he's had to go through. Well, let's throw this out there for the listeners and I'll let you get back to this thought. Uh, But just so they know, this is what Mark has had to endure. He, he, his child is abducted and missing for, a couple of months. The, the, I mean, the, the hurt that that does to you in that time frame, day after day, ridiculous. And then when they do find her, she's been murdered. Again, we can't even fathom the thought of having to deal with that. And then he's divorced. His, his wife, ex-wife moves to another state where the thought is that she's going, she was the driving force behind finding Amy, but, but for looking for Amy. And then she moves to another state and it's, did she give up? Did she, did she, um, succumb to illness? She dies. Uh, it wasn't terribly long after Amy, right? Within maybe 10 years or so. 
It was uh, 2001 that she passed away. And yeah, it was a combination of, you know, from the autopsy report or from the coroner's report, it was, you know, a combination of lupus and alcoholism. Do you get the vibe she, that Mark and his son are not extremely close these days? Oh, no, I actually, I I know exactly the, I know that it's completely the opposite. Oh, good, good. They are super close these good. days. Good, I was hoping They I was hoping are, for I've been there, I've been, I've interviewed Mark on two occasions for three plus hours each time. On the last time I was there, Jason called and, you know, they were setting up something to go. I mean, they see each other well, at least once a week now and they go to different uh, car races and car shows. And uh, he's kind of, I mean, they're buddies. You know, they really are. And the really interesting thing about the dynamic, and I don't want to get into too much of the fi- family dynamic, but yes, the divorce was going to happen no matter what, even if Amy wouldn't have gone missing. So they were already, they were on the, they outs. were already past the point of no return. Right. So, I asked Mark, did Amy, was Amy aware of how unhappy everybody was, you know, that you were and that, you know, obviously Margaret was because she drank so much. And his thought was, it's kind of hard for her not to have known that things were so bad. So, uh, look, my my parents split up and it was the, a couple years leading up to that. It was obvious. It was, I mean, it was like, it, you know, they, they were arguing all the time and right. uh, they're both good people, both smart people, loving, caring people. You know, there was no, no violence or no um, uh, running around behind another's back. It was just two people that had grown apart and, and were not getting along. And so I knew, I, I think I probably even told some friends, I wish they would just hurry up and get this divorce over with. But and then there's other relationships where we and we see this on TV and in movies more often. And so I don't know if it actually happens in real life or not. But all of a sudden, mom or dad one day pulls the child aside and says, honey, your father and I are splitting up and it's not your fault. And the kid is like railroaded, you know, had no clue that there was right. problems between mom and dad. But she's. Amy was old enough. If there was if there was infighting going on within the household, uh, she would have been aware that even if she wasn't told directly, she would have had an idea. She wasn't an idiot. She would have had an she idea. She was ten going on eleven. I mean, you're yeah. not. You are basically a teenager at eleven. I know you're not technically, but Amy was not dumb. Amy was very aware of what was going on around her, and I think that the person that used Aunt Margaret as the, you know, I use the word conduit, but, you know, as the way to to basically get to Amy's heart. I mean, he, that is like the ultimate drop your guard. We're going to go do something for your mom. And you know, your mom's unhappy and your mom has been sad and she's crying and, you know, she's drinking and, you know, God knows what the you know the atmosphere it at home at the time was like but if this little girl amy thought oh if i buy a gift for her you know things will things will be better and that's one thing that you know 10 year olds can be super smart about some things but they still have magical thinking in that sense too that hey maybe if i do something nice for my mom things at home can get better and 
James has mentioned before that there was tension between Amy and, you know, Margaret. And he references a story where, and I believe it was on, I aired it on one of the episodes where she's getting dropped off for her riding lesson and she's having a spat with her mom and she gets out of the car and her mom throws her riding boots out the window. Now that story is interesting, but doesn't it correct me if I'm wrong, but does, does that story come from a person that the police looked at and questioned? So that, yes. So what James, the way James knows that story is that apparently that story is involved, you know, involves uh, one of James suspects that he wrote about in his book, Harold bound. And I can say his name because his name has been published before. And, you know, he's, he's been investigated and, you know, there is a lot of interesting dynamics there. And what makes that story interesting is that when he threw the boots out, she threw the boots out the window, this guy apparently came up to Amy and was like, can I put those on for you? Or do you need help putting those on? And so it was just kind of that creep factor. But James, you know, he, he talks about how he went and, you know, looked into the place that he lived he's he's spoken with harold bound he doesn't actually believe it was was him but that also doesn't mean that it didn't necessarily come from somebody that may have been connected to the stables right now the individual that you and i discussed earlier the the man that's 21 at the time Mm -hmm. is he still alive he is. He is. Is he still roughly in northeastern Ohio? Yes, he is. He is in. Uh, he lives in one of the western suburbs. And other than the drinking and driving, no, nothing no else red has flags come up. on the criminal record. No, I haven't. You know, I was looking for you know crimes against women, violence against you know domestic violence or anything like that, and it. I don't know if he's gotten sober and things have gotten better in his life and again this guy could have absolutely nothing to do with anything to do with this case it's just circumstantially a lot of things are weird and they line up and just proximity wise and i'm not sure if this person's ever even been looked into as far as the investigation goes because i did bring up his name to chief spetzel and Spetzel's never one to comment on names, as most authorities, all authorities are reluctant to do or won't do. But he did say that, you know, I've, I honestly, I couldn't even tell you if I, uh, there's so many names. There are just so many names. I uh, often hope, and I hate to say this out loud, but I often hope that the individual that did this is still alive, unfortunately oh, yeah. lived a long life. Um, I say that mainly because I want to see them. Um, it's not so much for my own satisfaction to see who did it, because I do think this will get solved at some point. And I, I don't, I don't say that for my own satisfaction. I say that because this person needs the embarrassment needs the, um, uh, to be treated like the individual that they are underneath mm-hmm. the skin and, and needs to be brought forth to everybody to be, to be judged by us and, and judged by God. And I want that to happen to this individual. So 
where I'm going with this, Bill, is one thought that I think regarding this is that this individual was attracted, and, and I said this when you and I did our interview for your show, this person, this individual was sexually attracted to a 10-year-old going on 11-year-old girl, sexually attracted to her enough that he went to the risk of calling her home, went to the risk mm-hmm. of grabbing her in public, went to the risk of getting caught for for what he is. I feel that given those moves that he made, that this attraction, this thing inside of him is strong enough that I don't know that it goes away. I, I, I would, I would almost anticipate to that there would be uh future molestations um, of some sort. I think that this individual likely would be attracted to young girls, um, preteen girls for the rest it's of hard their to imagine, life. It's hard to imagine somebody being able to turn it off. Right. You know, they, they always say that about pedophiles. There is no cure. You know, you could put people in jail for 20, 30, 40 years. The day they get out, they still have those same urges, the same feelings that they did before. Those things don't go away. And that is one of the biggest problems that we face as a society with sex offenders is that there isn't a cure for that disease of pedophilia. And if this person was attracted to to Amy in that way that you just described, well, again, he would have and most likely done this again. And that's not to say that he didn't. Mm -hmm. It's just to say, let's say he did it and got away with it and nobody, you know, who maybe didn't kill this person. It's just that he molested them and they didn't turn him in. Well, and there's a lot of weird things there. And I had a good debate about this uh, a few years ago with somebody. And and I said the same thing, roughly the same thing, that once once that attraction, likely always that attraction, it's just something that's embedded in their DNA, I guess. Um, But my answer to I was asked, well, how how do you know? How do you know? And I obviously we don't know that for sure. There's no, I don't know if there will ever be a scientific way to prove that. But my way of backing that up was my own experience. My own experience is this: I'm a tr- I'm attracted to adult women. Well, I I'm not saying that this individual or or pedophiles wake up one day and decide, you know what, I'm going to be attracted to something that's illegal. I'm going to be attracted to something that's wrong in in the eyes of society and, well, just wrong. But if I woke up one day and the laws all of a sudden said having a relationship or having romance or sexual relationship with an adult woman is illegal, I, I would be locked up. And when they let me out two years from now, I would still be attracted to adult women. You know what I mean? That's That's the... That's how I back that up, saying that I think that for most, if not all of these individuals, once the attraction, always the attraction. I agree with that 100%. And it's another society. It's a a failure in our society is that we send people to jail. We don't rehabilitate people. We don't make them ready to not to say that there is a rehabilitation for a pedophile. But, you know, again, you serve your sentence, you do your thing, you follow the, the guidelines, you have to register as a sex offender there are 
there are ways to, you know, that we are able to keep track of these people. But the problem that everything boils down to is that 99% of the time these crimes occur, nobody, that person's not on a list. Right. You know, they, they don't, they haven't committed the crime yet. Right. It, it's just, you know, with, have you listened and I've, brought this up with james before but have you listened to in the dark uh, i know you don't listen to a lot of podcasts but it's the jacob, jacob Wetterling, Wetterling yeah and there you know with you brought this up earlier in the episode where you talked about how it's not a failure of the police and i don't i don't feel that way at all whereas in jacob wetterling's case i feel like you, there was a lot of Failure. There was a you know, there was breadcrumb trails back to the individual that we later know killed Jacob Wetterling. Yes, they freaking interviewed him. Right. <laughs> they took they took one of his victims to look at his car, and the kids was like, "Yeah, I this looks like it." But the fact that it wasn't a hatchback, they're like, "Oh, it's not him." That to me is a complete failure. Yes. But what what you said about the police and how you mentioned Spetzel going out of his way to say that this is not a cold case and back to the blanket thing you know I, you meant i just I, i'm just trying to like about the blanket thing mm. i did explain what his thoughts were it wasn't next to amy but it would have been better if it, it was released like 20 years ago right oh yeah <laughs> i mean even if they didn't have a connection even if they didn't have a scientific connection, you know, even if the similar canine hairs didn't come up in their re-examination of the items, it still would have been better to just say, look, this is what we found. Mm -hmm. Does anybody recognize this? Right. So that's one aspect that I will say, because I can't remember what the hell my curtains looked like 29 years ago. Right, right. I mean, what the fuck? I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> but like, you know, honestly, what the hell did your curtains look like 29 years ago? You tell me. No idea. No. And, exactly. they, and they were mine. I mean, well, they weren't mine. They were my parents. But um, so uh, sad enough, Bill, looking at the calendar later this month, October 27th will be 29 years ago. Amy Mahalovic was abducted and killed and we're still still waiting to find out what happened. Well, the one thing I'll say about the we're coming up on the 29 year anniversary, but the one thing that we do have going for us as far as the people who are out there hoping that this case is solved and the people that are working on solving the case is that they are working on it and they do have DNA that they are using to you know, run through all the tests that they've been able to track down the April Tinsley killer and the Golden State killer, they are working with those labs to do you know, the testing to try and find out who this individual is. And Phil Torsney said it could happen in a week, a month, a year, but it it's going to happen. You know, I found um, a, an article, and I think it might have been from the New York Times a few months ago that stated that at the time, 12 states were actively pursuing that type of DNA testing that, that, mm -hmm. that solved those cases. And and two others were getting on board. So that's 14 out of 50. 
So right. I, I, I encourage everyone out there, if you live in one of those states that does not, one of the 36 states that does not uh, ascribe to this method, contact your uh, city council members, your congressmen, your congresswomen, your senators, somebody, and voice your opinion because there's a lot of cold cases out there. There's a lot of justice still to be served. There's a lot of bad, evil men out there that still need to be apprehended. Thank you again to Nick for having me on their podcast. Off the record, a true crime garage Stitcher premium show. If you enjoy this independently produced podcast, please help support independent journalism by clicking on the donate button on the bottom left on whokilledamymihalovic.com. Any amount is appreciated and it helps keep the podcast running. If you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, that will also help support the show and help get Amy's story the coverage it deserves. You can contact the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234 if you have any new information. The FBI is also offering a reward up to $25,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the individual or individuals responsible for the death of Amy Mahalovic. Anyone with information concerning this case please contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Thank you again for listening, and be safe. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, And this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal.